Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, over the next, <clears throat> excuse me, over the next several Thursdays, uh, we're going to be walking through kind of a new series, uh, looking at some of the I Am statements in the book of John. Uh, but to kind of set the stage this morning, what I want to do is I want to go back and look at Exodus 3, and then uh, kind of give a quick overview of the book of John. Uh, we've talked about this before in the past, but it's interesting that when you come specifically to the Old Testament and begin to look at the names of God, you realize that the names of God in the Old Testament in the Bible specifically, but in the Old Testament, maybe more specifically, that the names aren't just a name. Uh, names symbolize something. It, it was a placeholder to represent an idea. In other words, when, you, when you're uh, naming your child, you didn't just name it Bob or Joe or Josephine or Jaquita or whatever. Uh, there, was, there was this thought process behind a name, and that name was to give meaning and depth and insight into the child itself. Uh, which is why, as you read through the Old Testament, you get some really crazy names. For example, you turn to the book of Hosea, and you look at Hosea's kids, and all of Hosea's kids have biz- bizarre names. Why? Well, it's not because of the n- name as much as what it symbolized. And again, here's Hosea, and he has these children with Gomer, and, and because of the prophetic and the movement of God upon his life, and, and what he knows God is doing, he gives these crazy names to his children as almost a symbol or as a picture of what God is doing. Uh, maybe another example of that would be the uh, change from Jacob to Israel, right? Here's Jacob, and the name Jacob means deceiver, manipulator, uh, heel grabber, right? What was, what was the character of Jacob? Well, he was a lying, deceiving manipulator, and his name was a picture of his character. It, it, was, it was a placeholder for something. So here's Jacob one night, and he's wrestling with God, and at the break of the day, God says, no longer am I going to call you Jacob because no longer are you going to be that heel grabber. No longer are you going to be that lying, deceiving manipulator. Why? Because I'm changing who you are. So now your name is going to be Israel, which is the one who wrestles with God or the prince of God because that is your new identity. So again, names were significant throughout the Bible because it symbolized a character, a nature, a, the attributes, that kind of an idea. So it's important then, as we, as we walk through Scripture, that when God begins to reveal his names, you realize he's not just giving you a name like, call me Bob, right? Call, call me Joe. It's not that kind of stuff. He's revealing his heart. Uh, he's revealing his nature. He's revealing his character. And so if you want to know God better, get to know God through his names, because his names are revealing attributes of who he is. Now, one of the greatest pictures of this is in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, one day there's a shepherd and he's taking his sheep and they're roaming the mountains and, and he'd probably been on this mountain countless times but on this particular day he looks over and there's this bush that is burning. It's not burning but it is burning but it's not burning up. There's a fire in the bush but it's not a fire. It's a bush. It's a, you know, it's this weird thing going on. 
And so Moses goes over to investigate to figure out why this bush that is burning, that is not burning, but it is burning, and trying to figure out this whole thing. And so Moses goes over and starts to investigate, and this voice begins to speak out of the bush. Uh, and if you have your Bibles, Exodus 3, <clears throat> 13, uh, God and Moses are speaking back and forth, and God says, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to free my people. And Moses says, well, all right, if I'm going to go there, they're going to ask me, what's your name? What do I tell them? So, so look at this. This is Exodus 3.13. Moses said to God, I'm going to the children of Israel and will say to him, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And when they say to me, what is his name? Well, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, you will say this to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God, moreover, said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Isn't it interesting that God says, Whoa, I have a name, and this is my name forever. Throughout all generations, this is my name. And what is the name that God gave Moses? Well, it was the unspeakable name of God. And we say the unspeakable name of God because obviously the Jews uh, so backed up from even pronouncing the name, we don't know how it's officially pronounced. But the idea was the Yahweh or the Jehovah idea. So here's, here's God. He says, here's my name, Yahweh. I am who I am. And what's really beautiful about even that, that name itself, uh, it's basically the idea of, at least how we would say it, he is. And then it has this idea of, uh, it's like a verb that has the idea of actively causing something. And then he thought that who God is, is he is. And he's actively causing something. That there's this activity going on. Uh, the, the Yahweh idea speaks of his unchanging character. It's the fact that he always, he was, he is, he always will be. He does not change. He's immovable. Why? Oh, and because of that, we can build our life upon him. Uh, that name Yahweh has this idea of, that God is the greatest of all, that he is self-sufficient, that he doesn't need us, but oh, he wants us kind of stuff. And God says, you know what my name is forever? I am. It's Jehovah. It's Yahweh. Now, it's beautiful as you take that idea and you begin to walk through the Old Testament. Nine times, God uses that name, Yahweh, and couples it with another name. Uh, for example, uh, Jehovah Nisi, right? It's Yahweh with Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner, or he's actively causing my banner, right? He, he's, the, he's that uh, victory flag, if you will, on the battlefield. Uh, there's Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Je Jehovah Shammah, the Lord that is there. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Mekadishkim, the Lord who sanctifies you. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord, our, our, the Lord of hosts. So nine times throughout the Old Testament, God reveals another name. And it's not just the name Yahweh, which is phenomenal, but it's Yahweh with another name. And so he couples these things together. Does that make sense? Which I think is just beautiful. As you come into the New Testament, 
It's interesting when you look at the name Jesus, and of course Jesus is our English translation of the word, but that word Yeshua or Yeshua is the word Yahweh with the verb to save. Do you know what Jesus' name literally means? It is Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is actively causing salvation, which is great. Why? Because that is who Jesus is. He is the Savior. And even in his name has this idea of Jehovah, or Yahweh is the one who is bringing about salvation. Which makes sense, or no wonder, that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, uh, here's the angel of the Lord. He shows up to Joseph and says, hey, Mary is pregnant. And, and listen, listen to what the angel says. The angel says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Oh, that does make sense, doesn't it? So he had to have the name Jesus. Why? Because he is the Savior. And the angel goes on and says, So all this will be done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So you get this idea that here is God, and he wants to be known. He, he's desiring for you to know him. And what is one way that we get to know God? Well, through his names. And again, over and over and over, there's, there's all these great names throughout the Old Testament. El Shaddai, Adonai, right? Then you have all the Jehovah ones. It's interesting that if you take that whole idea and you come into the book of John. Again, the book of John is written by one of the apostles. Uh, it's the beloved. He's writing years after the events, and he's looking back at what, what's taking place. And, and we know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been circulating at the time. And so John is kind of, kind of giving some insight that Matthew, Mark, and Luke doesn't give. And he's giving the grandeur and the over, uh, overwhelming reality that, that Jesus is God. It's his, his, the pressing of the divinity is what John is declaring. That Jesus is God. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But it's amazing what John does. It, it's, and again, it's really hard to see this in the English because it's, uh, it's almost hidden in one sense in the English. But as you walk through in the Greek, it's really fascinating to me that John, specifically in the book of John, uses a phrase in the Greek that highlights the grandeur and the divinity of Jesus. And it's going back and hearkening back to the Exodus 3 passage with Moses. The I am who I am, and this is my name forever. My name is Yahweh, Jehovah. And, and, the, and the words that John uses is this, is this two-little-word couplet, which is ego ami. And that word, ego ami, uh, it's, it's translated I am, is how we typically translate it in the English. But it's interesting that now it's used in a variety of ways throughout the Gospels. And when you go into the Old Testament uh, translation in the Greek, the Septuagint, it's, it's all over the place. And there's a lot of characters that use it. So God uses it. Jacob uses it. I mean, there's, there's all these people who use it in the Old Testament. But it seems like in the book of John, what John is almost exclusively doing, he uses, he uses that phrase 24 times in the book of John. And all of them but one is spoken by Jesus. The one time it's not is the blind man who's healed at the pool of Siloam. And someone says, you know, know, uh, they're asking a question, and the man says, oh, I am. I'm I'm him. Uh, So again, it's used in a generic sense. But it's fascinating how in the book of John, 
John seems to have an undercurrent meaning. And again, there's a lot of neat parallels between the book of John and the book of Genesis and the, in the sense of the grandeur of Jesus. It's this who he is. And so what I want to do is I want, I want to give you a couple thoughts to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be going over the next several weeks. <clears throat> it seems like in the book of John there are three different ways that John uses this phrase, ego me. Now, one of it, and it's only used a couple of times, but it's just like that statement, hey, it's me. Like, hi, it's me. Uh, for example, in uh, uh, John 4, 26, uh, it's a woman at the well scene, and Jesus kind of says, yep, it's me. They're having this conversation, and he just kind of gives some clarity that it's him. Again, in 9-9, here's the man at the pool of Siloam, and they're asking him a question, and he goes, whoop, it's me. So again, it's used in that sense. But one of the key ways that John uses that word, ego me, is this idea of speaking of the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. And I just want to give you a few of these verses. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip here if you want. But John chapter 6. And John chapter 6, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> verse 19 and 20, uh, here the disciples, they're out on the water, and there's a storm that comes up, and, you know, the, the, the waves are crashing into the boat, and there's all, they're all scared, and they look, and oh no, here is this person walking on the water. Now, how about you? I've never seen somebody walk on the water. And so they're, they're presuming it's probably some kind of a ghost, and they, they say, hey, uh, who are you? <laughs> Which is a good question to ask, I guess, someone walking on the water. And Jesus says to them in John 6, 20, It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, it's interesting. When you look at the context of that whole passage, you realize we are getting a picture of Jesus' divinity, that he has control over the natural realm, that here he is, he's skipping from wave to wave. Right? In other words, he is over the natural realm. And the idea is that it is, is showcasing his divinity, which is a beautiful thought. But in a more specific sense, you have this scene in John chapter 8. So if you have John chapter 8, I'd love you to just look at this because it's such a great passage. Uh, in John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is kind of in a, is in a tension, if you will, with the religious leaders. And uh, at the beginning of chapter 8, they bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And, and of course, you know, he makes that great statement, you know, whoever doesn't have any sin can be the one to cast the first stone. And of course, they all start leaving. And then you get into <clears throat> verse 12, and Jesus speaks to the fact that he's the light. And then as you get down into verse 24, uh, he's speaking to the religious leaders, and they're in this little contention. And, and look, at, uh, look at verse, I'll also read in verse 23. Uh, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, that you who die in your sins, uh, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, some translations say I am he, uh, but the he is an added word, to, at least to help us with our understanding in English grammar. Isn't it interesting that here's Jesus and saying, I'm not like you. I am born from above. You are born from beneath. I am not of this world. And if you want to be saved from your sins, you must believe that I am. And Jesus uses the word ego ami. Now, it's interesting. If you turn to the Greek translation of Exodus chapter 3, and God says, what is my name? And this is my name forever. The name I am is ego ami. 
Now, don't go crazy with that because it's used in a whole bunch of ways in the Old Testament. But I find it fascinating that here is Jesus, and we know that he likely was not speaking Greek, right? He's probably speaking Aramaic in, 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 the, in the sense of what actually came out of his lips, right? It's recorded in Greek because that's what it was written in, but he's speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew. The idea in the passage is here's Jesus, and he stands up and says, all right, if you want to be saved from your sins, you must believe that I'm Yahweh. Now, what happens because of this is there's a little confusion. Look at verse 25. They said, uh, it says that they said to him, who are you? And he says, uh, Jesus responds and says, well, just who I've been telling you from the very beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. So I tell the world what I heard from him. Now, they did not understand what he had spoke to them by the Father. Now, look at verse 28 of chapter 8 of John. It says, Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. What? And I do nothing of myself, but I speak these things as my Father taught me. Now, he goes back and forth and back and forth, and he gets down to verse 57. Now, <laughs> look at verse 57. Uh, Jesus makes a statement uh, in verse, I think it's 56, uh, speaking about your father Abraham rejoiced to see me in my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews go, we don't get it. So look at this, verse 57. It says, and the Jews said to him, you are not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? In other words, there's this misunderstanding. They're looking at Jesus, who's, you know, 30, 31 years old, right around that early 30s age. And they're like, you're not even 50. And you're saying you saw Abraham, and Abraham saw you? Yeah, right. But look what Jesus says, verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if you understand what Jesus is saying, verse 59 makes sense. Verse 59 says, Then they took up stones to throw at him. Why? That's blasphemy. You are calling yourself God? You are putting yourself on equal footing as the unspeakable name? You are giving the same name that God gave to Moses? Jesus goes, yes. Because that is who I am. I am the I am. And even his name bespeaks of that reality. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So here is John giving this phenomenal declaration that here is Jesus... And he is the same one who spoke to Moses in the bush. Here, is, here he is in human form. His name is Jesus, and he is divine. That is exciting. Tell your faces. This is good stuff. Now, if you go over to chapter 18, there's another one of these great statements. Uh, here's Jesus praying in the garden, and, and Judas and, the, and the, uh, the high priestly guard comes, and, and they're arresting Jesus. And they show up to Jesus, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And he says, they said, hey, we're, we're looking for Jesus. Do you know how Jesus responds to them? Uh, in, in John 18, verse, uh, verse 6 through verse 8, he says it twice. He says, I am. It's not just, hey, are you Jesus? And he goes, yep, that's me. Now, that is in John. That does show up at times in John. But what he's saying here is not just, well, yeah, I think, yeah, that's me. What he's saying here is, Hey, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, Yahweh. 
here I am. And it says uh, that they drew back and fell on the ground when he said it. Why? Because he's speaking the unspeakable name of God. He's not just saying, hey, you've come for a mere man. He's saying, hey, you've come for me, the one who spoke to Moses in the bush. Hey, this is me, the one you're about to crucify. Yes, I am the God of the universe. I am the I am. That's beautiful. So again, one of the ways that this ego of me is used in the book of John is this divinity, this declaration of Jesus' divinity. But one of the other ways, which is what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, is, is the way this word ego of me is used with the predicate nominative. Now, don't get lost. I know that a lot of us have forgotten our sixth grade grammar. But the predicate nominative is the thing that we put at the end of a sentence that gives content to the statement. So I ask you, who are you? And you say, I am a teacher. The teacher, the word teacher, is the predicate nominative giving definition to the I am statement that you made. Everyone tracking? I am a plumber. Oh, the plumber is the predicate nominative giving the content, the meaning to what the I am is. I am a general goof-off. That's true. So general goof-off is the predicate nominative of the I am. Does that make sense? So it's interesting, when God reveals his name, do you recognize that he doesn't give a predicate nominative? He just says, I am. You're, you're what? I am. Yeah, but you are what? I am. And it begs for a predicate nominative. But God doesn't give that. He just says, I am. Hey, I'm the one who's actively causing. Hey, I am sufficient in and of myself. I'm unchanging. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am. But it's interesting in the book of John, that's there without the predicate nominative. So that, that's there. He's divine. Jesus is the great I am. But isn't it neat that seven times in the book of John, a predicate nominative is given, which gives definition to the I am. Everyone still tracking? It seems like there's a parallel in the Old Testament when you take the name Yahweh or Jehovah and you put it with another name, Jehovah Rapha. He's the God who heals. And the healing gives content to the I am statement. Who is the I am? Well, he's the one who heals. Right? He's the one who shepherds. He's the one who's the banner. He's the one who brings the victory. He's the one who's the Lord of the hosts. He's the one. And it's interesting that John does the exact same thing. He uses the name ego of me, this I am statement, and then he ties it with this picture, uh, this metaphor, if you will, that gives content to who Jesus is. Everyone looks confused. Make sense, though? In other words, if you wanted to get to know Jesus better, look at what the, this I am statement points to. Because the I am statement, with this predicate nominative, gives content, meaning, to his heart. It's one of his names, if you will. So let me just give them to you really quick, and we're going to be walking through each of these over the next few weeks. Uh, in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's not just bread. He's that which sustains. He's that which feeds. He's that which brings you along. 
Uh, he's, that, he's the manna in the wilderness, if you want the Old Testament picture. Uh, in John chapter 8, he says that I am the light of the world, that he himself is the light. Uh, in John chapter 10, he says that I am the door or the gate of the sheep. Uh, in John 10, he also says that I am the good shepherd, that he's the fullest expression of Psalm 23. Why? Because he is the great high shepherd, and he is the shepherd of our souls, and he is leading us beside the still waters, that he's walking us through the valley of the darkness, the valley of shadows of death, all that kind of stuff, that he is Psalm 23 in the fullest expression, and he is shepherding our souls. In John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so again, these become a picture or metaphors for the fullest reality of who he is. So if you want to get to know the character of our great king, well then, look at what the I am statements point to. Because he is the I am. He's the ego of me. And Jesus keeps standing up saying, "Woo! here I am. I am the great I am. Hey, that voice that spoke to Moses in the burning bush, yep, that's me. John 12 says that, that the vision that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, as Isaiah walked into the temple, and he said, you know, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. John says, do you know who that was? That was Jesus. That the reality, the fullest expression of who God is in the Old Testament has come forth in the form of a man. His name is Jesus. And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the I am of the I am. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at each of these I'm really excited. So if you want to, if you want to do a study with me, uh, look at John chapter 6 and look at this idea of how is Jesus the bread of life? What does that actually mean? We're going to look at that next week. But let me give you one other thought. It's interesting that in both the Hebrew and the Greek, this idea of I am, the ego of me, Yahweh, it's present tense. Which tells you this isn't God saying, you know who I used to be? You know, back in the day, yeah, I used to be a plumber. Now, that's how we talk. Right? Hey, back in the day, I did this when I was a little kid, and then I did this as a teenager, and I did this as an adult, and, and, and it's, this, this, this was. Oh, someday in the future, yeah, I really hope, and that this, is, this is my hopes and my dreams, and I hope this will come about. And do you realize that God doesn't say that kind of stuff? It's present tense. Because this is who he is. You realize when he says that I am Jehovah Rapha, it's not that he was once upon a time the great healer. He is the great healer. Hey, when he says that, hey, I'm, I'm the, the uh, Jehovah Rapha, that I'm the, sh I'm the great shepherd, you realize that wasn't, well, yeah, back in the day I did some sheep stuff, but yeah, I've kind of given that up because I've moved on. No, he is the great shepherd. That uh, Jehovah Shammah, he is the Lord that is there. Right this very moment. He is Jehovah Nisi. He is our banner. Right this very moment. He is Jehovah Sikkenu. He is our righteousness. That we are to put on, as Isaiah said, as a robe. And we are to wear him when? Right this very moment. Because he is the God of the present tense. Which is a neat idea. He's Jehovah Mekadishkim. He's the one who is sanctifying us. Oh! Someday in the future. No, right now he's sanctifying us. 
He's Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides. Well, when does he provide? Right now. That he's Jehovah Shalom. He's the peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Oh, so someday in the future? Yeah, that's true. Well, was he that in the past? Well, yeah, that's true too. But you realize it's right this very moment because this is his unchanging character. He is Jehovah's Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. It's present tense. So you realize that when Jesus is giving this ego of me statements, and he says, I'm the bread, the light, the gate, the resurrection, the life, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, you realize this isn't something we can go, oh, God, one day could you be the hope for my life? God, one day could you shepherd my soul? One day could you be the bread of my life? One day could you be my light? Because this is present tense. And do I know Jesus in the present tense? Because I think so often we get either wrapped up in the academic and we push it to a past tense, that he's this academic study that we can do back in the day. Some, you know, yeah, you know, he's, 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 he's like, uh, like Caesar. Let's study Caesar. So it's this character in the past, and let's do a character study, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not Jesus. And yeah, yeah, he was on the earth 2,000 years ago, and that was phenomenal, but you realize he's present tense. He's not some future thing that we just have to, you know, presume this is going to happen. That is true. He's coming back. And Scripture gives us a lot of great information about this reality of what it means for a second return. But you realize he is present tense. And I guess the big question for my soul, even this morning, is, am I living as if Jesus is present tense? Am I living as if right now he is the good shepherd? Am I living right now as if he is my light? Am I living right now as if he's my bread? And just as I, I grabbed a protein bar on the way out this morning, I was eating a protein bar going, Woo, I love my protein bars. Do I love Jesus like that because he is the nourishment of my life? Hey, just as the uh, Israelites had to go out and get the manna every single day because manna was only available for the present tense, I couldn't hoard it. I couldn't hold it from the back stuff. I couldn't prep it for the future. It had to be present day stuff. You realize that's what Jesus wants to be in my life. Is Jesus present tense in my life? Is who he says he is the reality of my life at this very moment? Am I coming to him as the great I am? Because he is the I am. And that's in present tense. I think if we would live that way, it would change, it would change how we think. It, it would change how we speak. It would change how we live we truly saw Jesus in the present tense. Which is an exciting thought, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, we do declare that you are the great I am, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, who holds all things in the palm of your hand. And all things are from you and through you and to you for your praise and your glory. Lord, could we live as if that is the reality right this very moment? That this isn't just some high-minded academic study where we go, yes, ooh, that's good. He is a shepherd. Lord, I want you to shepherd my life right now. This isn't, oh, yeah, he was the manna in the wilderness, the daily bread stuff back in the day. Lord, I want you to be my daily bread today. Lord, I need light for this day. The light yesterday is insufficient. I need light today. So would you, in my present tense, be the light because you are the light? Hey, would you be the, the fullest reality? Would you be the consumption? Hey, you are the way, the truth, and the life. 
right this very moment. Which is why I think Peter said, or why he could say, that everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in Jesus. Because everything we need for this very moment is found in the one who is present tense. Lord, could, could you somehow expand our vision, our minds, to grapple with the fact that you, as you walked this earth, was the great I am. That the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush was none other than Jesus. The one that Isaiah saw high and lifted up is, is you. And now the one who indwells my life, oh, is that same person through your spirit. So Lord, could we live in that reality? Could you somehow get us out of just the academic study of Scripture? And could you somehow make this practical for day in and day out living that you want to be the great I am in my life, that you are the unchanging one, the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are the one who is actively causing in my life. So Lord, we just give you the praise and the glory for who you are. We love you. Just pray this in your precious, holy, powerful name.